Welcome back to season one, episode two of Dialogue Dilemmas, where we explore what blocks the curiosity to listen in political conflict. So last time um, on episode one, I talked about emotional contagion and how emotions can spread between users on social media, specifically when talking about political issues. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that and it sounds interesting to you, please go check it out. It's available on Spotify or on my website. And in today's episode, I want to continue focusing on how we as individuals relate to political dialogue by having a conversation about how do we manage our individual lives and sort of balancing engaging with larger political issues while also tending to the everyday routine and trivia of our lives. And I have a guest with me here today, Elise. Would you like to introduce yourself, Elise? Would you like me Uh to introduce you? Sure. Okay, so I've known Elise uh, since we were in college together. It's probably been like over Let's 10. not talk about how many years. Okay, I'll cut that. I'll cut that out. <laughs> and um, we went to Butte College together, which is near Chico, and we both were studying sustainability and peace and global studies, as well as other things. Had some classes together, so we've been talking about engaging with the political sphere for a long time. So even though Elise does not currently live in Chico, she does have some connection to our area. And as I mentioned in the first episode, a lot of the issues that are present in the Chico community are issues that people are facing in communities everywhere, such as COVID-19 and the various policies that relate to that, lockdowns and masking and stay-at-home orders and other measures that are being taken and other issues that many communities are dealing with. Would you like to say more about any of that or anything else you want to add about yourself? I still feel like I'm part of the Chico community. I still have so many ties there. Yeah. So yeah, so speaking of these issues that are going on in the Chico community and other places, including where you live, what are some of the issues on your mind today or the things that you are most engaged with, following news about, thinking about? I mean, COVID-19, the vaccinations. uh, I've had some friends that recently got vaccinated, so that's pretty cool. And we're on the wait list um, and I'm waiting to find out when our office will be able to get vaccinated. They've given us some approximate timelines. It sounds like maybe February, March or April. So that's kind of cool. Something to look forward to. And I've been reading and listening to a lot of people that are talking about the vaccinations. And I've actually been doing that throughout the pandemic because UC Santa Cruz has had a lecture series going where they've been talking about um, like the development of vaccinations and their own work because they have, I mean, they're a science-based school. So they've got, um, they've been doing a lot of stuff for it uh, and developing COVID testing. And also they've been like DNA mapping the different strains. Mm -hmm. So I've been thinking a lot about that. (laughs) Yeah. The, focus that I had in mind to for today's episode 
that I already shared with you is to talk about like, how do we manage engaging with these bigger issues that affect so many people while also managing um, just the daily tasks that we need to accomplish in our lives of taking care of ourselves or homes or jobs, whatever that may be. And it sounded like, I know that I really struggle with that and it sounded like you do too. Yeah, a lot. And it feels like a catch-22 because I like have ADD. So working from home is not a great strategy for me. Luckily, I don't have to. But because I'm not working from home, that's an added stress because during a pandemic, you want to be. (laughs) So it's like, how do you manage that? How do you figure out what the right balance is to keep yourself functional when it feels like every single move is a bad one? Because like mental health is going to deteriorate either way. Like if I stay at work, my mental health is not great. If I go home, my mental health is still not going to be great. (laughs) Uh, It's definitely been a struggle. Yeah, that's totally understandable. I have struggled with that too. Maybe not in the same way because I'm not working outside of my house currently, but I struggle with like staying focused at home and feeling like I don't really have somewhere to go. And then if I do try to get out of the house to go work, maybe on a coffee shop patio or something, there's that anxiety of who am I around? yeah Um, and trying trying to stay focused is just really hard right now because even if you've got everything that you need to be able to work and you're in a good workspace all of the pressures of the things that are happening globally and locally are really heavy you know (laughs) so you're you're trying to you're trying to stay normal and stay functional but you're like there's all of this stuff going on and you feel like you should not be doing normal things right now. It feels like that's the wrong thing to be doing, but you have to do it. Uh, And that makes it feel kind of impossible to concentrate sometimes. Like you're doing a mundane task and there's all this not mundane stuff going on around you. (laughs) Like what are you supposed to do? Totally. Um, That is at least a semi-decent place for me to segue into one of the things I wanted to talk about today which is so one thing I'm doing with this podcast is trying to incorporate like talking about lived experience with also scientific research and theories about um, political conflict and communication and other relevant theories and I'm wondering if you're familiar with the concept of cognitive load No, I'm not. Um, So it might be kind of an intuitive concept. And I'm kind of talking to you, but kind of talking to like future listeners as well and explaining this. So cognitive load theory comes out of cognitive psychology. And it was developed by a researcher named John Sweller. And it's basically just the idea that the more things we have on our mind the harder it is for us to perform tasks or function. (laughs) Kind of a simple concept, but I'm trying to do it justice. And give, uh, it sounds also like being able to name what's going on might be helpful and having a term to, uh, to relate to. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I want to mention that because I think that right now the cognitive load that we're all carrying is a lot. It's basically too much. It's more than we can, um, than we can really manage and respond to all the situations in our personal lives and the wider world. I definitely agree with that. And there's like specific stuff that they came up with about like long-term memory and working memory and how all these things relate to each other. And so, you know, if if anybody is right now struggling with like keeping up with the political situation and the news and then having trouble remembering things in our personal lives, like just taking care of tedious tasks, I can totally, I think that's totally understandable given that like we're working with these real brains that have limits I was reading a book a long time ago. This is a bit of an aside, but it's called Cluj. And it was talking about how if you look on an evolutionary basis, nature just kind of finds the quickest way to make things work. But long term, that can cause like some short circuits (laughs) and Uh it gives you limitations that you, you know, have to find new workarounds for later. And so you end up with this big hodgepodge of things and how we work biologically and it feels like cognitive load is one of those short circuits (laughs) yeah it makes me think of like some really messy code or something I mean I'm not a coder but like that where you're just like doing all these like workarounds and patches and like trying to fix one problem and then another problem comes up (laughs) and then before you know it you've got a bunch of code and you're like I don't know what I was thinking at the time that I wrote this line (laughs) Yeah, but then you take it out and something starts malfunctioning. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And I want to bring that up partly because I know for me, like, sometimes I feel so guilty that I don't feel more able to engage with issues that seem really important that are affecting people's lives. And yet I feel so limited. And if I try to tend to that, then I'm neglecting certain things in my personal life. And then that's not good. Things start spiraling out of control. Do you have any thoughts on that? I found myself in similar situations to that. I like constantly switching up my coping mechanisms and like my strategies because each one, just given the scope of everything we're working with right now, it doesn't seem like any one of those, which has always served me well in the past, are working very well for me right now. And so I have to like, because before, when things were getting really crazy on the political spectrum or like national news was just crazy, I would always remind myself, like, focus down. Like, if I'm getting overwhelmed with the global situations, like, focus on my community and just like focus down for a little bit. And that was really useful. But then the pandemic happened, um, as well as like, the political situation that we've been going through with the election and focusing down wasn't helping anymore because it was just chaotic just as chaotic on a small scale as it was on a large scale and I had to find like new coping mechanisms or new ways to do self-care and like try to keep myself sane but it I don't know like it just feels like everything's been breaking down recently because it's it is it's really hard to kind of figure out where the balance is and where we're supposed to be focusing or like how we're supposed to be focusing right now. It's been so confusing and difficult to figure out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
the main thing I'm, I guess I just want to reiterate that you said is that like some of the strategies that you've used to work with feeling overwhelmed about what's going on in the world are just not, haven't been working as well with the recent circumstances. Definitely not. Yeah. Which is really frustrating because like you need to find ways to function. You, it's not an option to not function because you have to eat, you have to keep yourself clean, you know, and in my case, I have to work because there's bills to pay. Like there isn't, there isn't an option to not function. Um, and so having all of these, you know, strategies that took me a long time, a lot of habit building and a lot of, you know, reading up on things and taking classes, it took a long time to build those habits and those strategies to be successful, to have them break down is like very upsetting and disconcerting. And it leaves you feeling really lost and which is like beyond overwhelm, right? Because it's like, there's inner chaos and outer chaos. And usually there's like one or the other, like a certain amount of chaos always, but like usually the outer chaos is larger sometimes than the inner chaos and vice versa. And now it's like all the chaos levels are <laughs> just huge and they're all over the place. Um, so it's like extraordinarily frustrating right now trying to figure out and sort out everything. And then just the amount of misinformation that's out there makes it even worse because you're trying to sort yourself out and you've got, not only do you have more information at your fingertips than you've ever had, right? Because we're a global mm -hmm. community and with the internet, we can get news from literally any corner of the earth. Um, and so we not only have way more awareness of things that are going on around, not just in our communities, but on a national and global scale, but now we've got all this misinformation that's like targeted, right? Like they're intentionally putting it there to confuse you and it's super effective. <laughs> Uh, and that's pretty frustrating too, because I feel like that compounds the issue and makes things that much worse. Like you're already in a bad situation mm -hmm. and now you've just like added to that pile, um, makes it yeah. a lot easier to feel like you're breaking down. And I can see how the whole concept of cognitive load would interface with it being more difficult to like sort through information and figure out like what is reliable or not yeah definitely like if you're already just at mental capacity have you found any strategies that have been helping you or have you found things that have been making it a little bit easier <laughs> I don't know I'm a mess too <laughs> um, <laughs> I think no I don't really feel like I'm very high functioning these days my strategy is I'm going to talk about it on this podcast and <laughs> see if I can raise awareness with other people about this phenomena so that we can figure out what to do about it I definitely think talking about it and naming it helps like and I, I know I mentioned this to you earlier but I guess we can also mention it on the podcast is that like when I was having really bad anxiety I didn't recognize it as the anxiety that I was feeling because I was thinking my definition of anxiety was much narrower and I was having all these issues and I had this particularly bad day at work and I couldn't figure out what was going on. I was just, I wasn't doing well and was getting really frustrated and very upset. And I saw a friend's post that was talking about the different ways that anxiety could present and reading through it, I realized that what was happening wasn't just me like 
having a bad day. I was having an anxiety attack, but I didn't know that I was having an anxiety attack because my definition of anxiety had been so much narrower before um, and that I didn't recognize the symptoms of what I was experiencing. And just reading that post and being like, okay, there's a name for what's happening to me right now. I'm not just going crazy. <laughs> like there's a reason that this is happening. It was immediately calming. So I think it does help to talk about it and to have terminology um, and definitions for the things that we're experiencing because I think that can help us sort through them and calm ourselves down a little bit and like get back on track to being able to function even when our circumstances are you know monumentous in the other direction in trying to keep us from functioning yeah yeah I kind of I'm thinking too about this terminology thing and how back when the fires were happening and the sky up here was just like black and um someone I know was going around telling people like this is not normal and our lizard brains are reacting to this like millions of years of evolutionary history go into telling us the sky should not be black and if the sky is black you need to panic (laughs) and it's so it's really hard (laughs) to just function while that much Like, I mean, I don't know for sure. I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but it makes a certain intuitive sense to me that there would be a sort of instinctual response to this guy is black. I need to freak out. I definitely felt that way. (laughs) There's a certain, like, I remember waking up and like looking out the window and you see that specific kind of orange that tells you it's a fire like it's not like a sunrise or sunset orange it's it's a very specific orange that I unfortunately living in California I've gotten really used to seeing Mm -hmm. Um, and there's this immediate sense of dread and fear and panic when you see it because you know it's not right and you know what it means right you know it's a fire (laughs) and that fire is not good when it's threatening your home so it makes intuitive sense to me too because even without evolutionary science behind it I mean fire is a threatening thing and the signs of fire are dark sky and smoke and that Pantone orange yeah so I kind of want to hopefully this doesn't feel too um what do you call it like ham-fisted but I want to bring this to the realm of dialogue since that's the focus of the podcast dialogue dilemmas and connect this to how we communicate with people about political issues when we're under so much stress and like at our cognitive load is very burdened. Mm -hmm. And there's one study I wanted to, well, I have a couple studies I wanted to mention, but one of them is from some researchers named Van Prugen and Van Devere from 2003. I put references in my show notes too, so people can look at that. And it's not about political conflict per se, but it's about like perceiving people as evil. And so what they did was that they had participants in the study, told them to memorize a complex telephone number. And then like in the control group, they memorized a really simple telephone number where all the digits were basically the same. And then they were presented with these vignettes. The participants were given these vignettes of uh, someone who'd perpetrated a crime but the vignettes were manipulated so that it was the same crime and the same person, 
but they were manipulated to make the person sound like more or less evil. Like in one, it was like, oh, this guy always seems suspicious. And his neighbor said he would yell at the kids to like get off his lawn and, you know, made him sound um, more evil or like, oh, at the trial, he didn't seem to show at the first court hearing, he didn't seem to show any remorse. Whereas in the other vignette, it would say like he was a family man and he was, you know, everybody was so surprised that he would ever do such a thing. But the crime that the person committed, it was like hypothetical, was the same either way. And then they measured, it's a fairly complicated study, really. There's a lot of variables here, but they basically measured if the participants thought that the person was more or less evil based on what their cognitive load was. And wait, are you with me so far? Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you so far. So it sounds like they had four test groups so like one had the simple number and the the story that put this guy in a better light one had the simple number and the story that put the guy in a more negative light and then uh, the same for the more complex number is that what I'm understanding yeah there was at least four there might have even been more because I know I think in one of the vignettes it was like a murder and then uh, and then I think they also did one where it was a different crime um, so like potentially eight groups that we're yeah. looking at. Yeah. And it's not like super cut and dry, but as far as I understand it, the people who had to memorize the more complex number, and they really did try, which they measured by seeing if they memor- if they could, you know, repeat the number at the end, and many of them could repeat it. The people who were able to report back the number either totally accurately or accurately for like most of the digits mm-hmm. were also at least somewhat more likely to consider the person evil when they were given the vignette where they were portrayed as more evil. And then there was some effect of if people were given the vignette where the person was portrayed as sympathetic of thinking that they were less evil. Basically, as I understood it, having to memorize the complex number kind of removed the nuance. Like people were more influenceable like the participants, if they were trying to memorize this complex number, then they were more influenceable by how the story was portrayed. Whereas if they were just memorizing the simple number, there wasn't so much of a clear pattern of whether they thought the person was evil or not based on how the story was told. They maybe were able to like think about it more and like develop their own opinion, not just based on like how the story was told. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of intuitive sense. And I don't know if you remember this, but in one of our classes when we were talking about sustainability, and this is like not entirely related, but this is what I was thinking of when I'm thinking of this study that you're telling me about. Yeah. um, Was how it was in one of our communication classes, I think, when we were talking about how to communicate about climate science and have people understand it and then also the importance of recognizing where people are at and why social justice issues are so closely tied to environmental issues which is because if people are already overwhelmed and in survival mode just trying to get make ends meet from day to day they don't have the capacity or the ability or the care to care about things on a a larger issue right they're only concerned Mm -hmm. about the here and now And so like, for example, if you're saying like, it's going to be better for you and your kids and we'll have cleaner air if you were in a a consumer society, so I'll make a consumer analogy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you buy this ecologically friendly product, 
that is slightly more expensive because in the long term, it's better for everybody. But in that moment, that person's probably going to view it very negatively and get mad at the audacity that you be suggesting that they buy something more expensive when they can't afford it. And so not only are they going to buy the the less expensive product, but they're going to be like kind of negatively impacted by that. And I've seen that, um, you know, in, in real life when people get up, uh, upset mm-hmm. and they have a really hard time thinking about these issues because they're in survival mode, you know, they've got a big cognitive load. They've got all these other things that they're thinking about. Um, and so that study makes a lot of intuitive sense to me. Yeah. There was something you were saying, and I'm not sure if this is a stretch, but I was kind of connecting it back to the cognitive load idea and a related concept. Have you ever heard about like chunking no, for, I for memorizing things? So oh, wait, yes, yes, I think so. So like, yeah. um, it's chunking, for example, in phone numbers, if you try to think of each individual digit and memorize it individually, it's really hard to memorize those nine numbers. But if you chunk yeah. it together, so for instance, the the area code yeah. as one thing, and then the rest of the number as a second thing, instead of memorizing nine things in your head, you're only memorizing two things. Yeah. And that's totally like in cognitive load theory is just like, okay, we have working memory, which can only hold like, I think five to maybe max seven, but I think it might even be less like three or four things six. at a time. Yeah. And so, yeah, you have to like combine things in order to remember more things. And I was thinking that kind of relating what you said about connecting environmental justice to social justice. Like if somebody cares about an issue and they may not feel able to like care about an additional issue, but if you show how they're related, then it's like chunking it sort of (laughs) instead of adding a new thing. Yeah. I do that all the time um, because it is easier. Well, um, all of my work, I've always had to memorize like, or know a lot of things. I do this a lot with environmental theories and thoughts because it's just easier to remember them that way. It's also easier to draw the connections that I need to if I chunk them together. Um, and this is only slightly related, but in my day-to-day work, the chunking really helps because I have a lot of volunteers that I have to remember. And I also used to do like case management stuff. And the way that I would remember them is by putting them together. The only drawback to this is that I would have to say the person's full name to remember the other details about them. So I couldn't just do a first name or last name basis. It had to be the full name because I'd remembered it in a full chunk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but in that little packet of information, because I had memorized that chunk, I would also have all of the case information that I had to remember about them. So like how many members of the family, what their financial situation was and what, what they were eligible for. Uh, was all together in a single packet in my mind, rather than singular packets, uh, which, you know, has its own drawbacks, because I'd have to remember everything at once, but it made it a lot easier to remember a lot of people. Yeah. I don't know if that was helpful or not. (laughs) No, I'm just, I'm just thinking about it. And I was also like, thinking about like, how things can move from working memory to long term memory. And then it's easier to like, recall them without having to be in the forefront of your brain but I'm not sure (laughs) that's kind of far afield I was just um wanting to mention so like the idea of the study it's somewhat oversimplified I don't know that I'm entirely doing it justice to say this but it seems like at least some of the results point to well when you have a lot on your mind you're more likely to perceive people as either good or bad in this like unnuanced way and how does that show up in our current political dialogues 
I'm wondering if that's kind of behind the whole social media, because you see a lot of commentary on social media and how people jump to conclusions really quickly. And I'm wondering if what we're talking about right now has any connection to it. And I have absolutely nothing to back to back this up. This is just me pondering out loud. Yeah. Um, but what you're talking about right now is bringing up thoughts in me on, well, there's been all of these thought pieces and like skits and uh, commentary on how we all kind of like pile on, right? When we see like these Twitter threads and we'll immediately make a judgment call. Oh, that person's the mm-hmm. worst. They need the, the worst punishment ever. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if it's a response to um, to that kind of information overload because we're getting all yeah. of this information and it's constant, right? Like hundreds of bits of information from all over. And then we get yeah. like, these little sound bites and maybe that's why it's so much easier to jump on and immediately be like, oh, that person should be burned at the stake. This is just terrible. They were the worst person. <laughs> totally. Um, well, this I think this directly relates to chunking. I, I hadn't really thought about it exactly this way before, but it's like I have a spot in my brain for this category of people, whatever my political positions are in something. You know, I think a lot of us, we have like these compartments in our minds for this type of person who thinks this way and is opposed to the way I think and then anything we see that reminds us of that we just put it in that packet even if it doesn't <laughs> like if I see someone comment something on social media and there's something that even remotely like it's like I want to put it into one of the pre-existing categories that I have in my mind and because we need to get it off of that countertop that is our mind space right and you're like I just need to file this I'm filing it here yeah and so then it just gets like really oversimplified and it's all like us and them like you know my allies or my enemies I think with somewhat of a bias towards seeing something as an enemy but both directions I see this on the California governor's Facebook page actually (laughs) like since the pandemic granted I didn't This is purely like anecdotal because I didn't follow him before, but I see all Mm -hmm. these people just like being really like pandering toward him and like thinking him being like, you're doing an amazing job of leading us right now. And I feel like it's sort of just a reaction to the negativity. Like, I don't know that those people really appreciate him as much as they say. And I don't know. I don't know these people, but I kind of suspect that it's like just I may be getting really far afield here. <laughs> Maybe I'm doing my own <laughs> chunking of like, I'm just putting these people in this category of like, they're just pandering. It's so funny that you say that. Cause I've also been on the governor's page recently and I've noticed that in the comments too. And like people <laughs> have like these, like they've got these strong knee jerk reactions and I kind of feel like they're not thinking it through because they're like, yeah, it's either super strong support or they're condemning him. Like he's Satan himself. (laughs) Yeah. And there does not seem to be any middle ground in that. And I I think maybe it does have something to do with chunking and, um, and with, uh, with mental overload. Right. Because I don't think that they're sometimes their responses are so like quick and also like so simplified and strong. It doesn't seem to relate to anything that, his actual post has right I mean, they yeah. don't seem to be responding to him it's like the idea of him that they're responding to yeah and whichever perception they've got of him and like is kind yeah. of where they're falling everyone's already bringing a lot of it's really high context maybe we could say like yeah. they're already bringing a lot of feelings and perceptions 
about yeah. previous posts and previous conversations they've had more than yeah, I think so. reacting to the specific thing. So that's, I mean, is that dialogue? Usually when I think of dialogue, I think of it as something that's a specific type of communication that's more about like listening to each other and really trying to understand and be clear and be understood and bringing in like more nuance and stuff. I'm not sure there's a specific cutoff point when you can say it's kind of hard to conceptualize when that's happening and when it isn't, I guess. You could so, like, like where the line with, is drawn. Yeah. I mean, you could come up with some metrics. People find ways to measure all sorts of things in mm. research. This is completely random aside, but I remember doing like a research paper on um, psychedelic mushrooms and realizing that you could quantify people's sense of what was the word like oceanity or something <laughs> like <laughs> feeling <laughs> like oneness <laughs> with the world like people rated it on a scale <laughs> so you can measure anything I guess <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but I'm not sure I can pull out a way to measure that off the top of my head right now yeah neither can I a lot of the things that I've been thinking about too like don't feel measurable it's like these phenomenons that are just happening and like caught up and getting swept away with them. Yeah. So I don't, you know, there's not easy answers to this. Like, I don't think just being aware of this isn't going to immediately reduce that cognitive load. But I do just want to bring it up, not as um, something that can really immediately be solved. Like we're all going to continue to be mentally overburdened probably by the combination of our personal stressors and the wider world and the ways those things interact. Um, but maybe we could be aware of it. Uh, like mm -hmm. when we're interacting with people like, Oh, am I jumping to a conclusion about this person? And just, if I'm just like thinking this person is evil, this person is bad. Is that coming from the fact that I'm in cognitive overload? And well, also that, Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Finish your thought. No, no, you, you go. <laughs> no, I'll remember mine. You finish okay. your thought. Okay. Well, just that it might be happening the other way, too. Like, if some if I'm interacting with someone on social media or something about, like, say, in the comments of a news article or whatever, and they're telling me that I'm evil or bad or horrible, whatever, because they don't like my political position, that that might be going on for them, too. Like, they're also having cognitive overload, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. So two thoughts are brought up when you say that. Um, one of them is, yeah, I definitely think so because I've been trying to be more aware of it and I've noticed that it has changed how I interact with people. Um, and specifically on social media because there's somebody that's on my social media that I have very opposite views of. Mm -hmm. um, I think it confuses a lot of I think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that person. Um, and the fact that we've been able to dialogue as we have has actually changed not just my interactions with them, but how I interact on social media in a lot of different ways. Um, because I find myself being a little bit more thoughtful and pausing a little bit longer. And when, because normally or before I'd be like, oh, I've got to call it, call this out on something like that. And it was like more of a trying to get you sort mm -hmm. of and being able to dialogue with them I've actually stepped back from that and been like okay hold on if they're thinking that about me and I'm thinking that about them 
then how do we have a productive conversation that's actually going to get us somewhere rather than us just continuously pointing fingers back and forth at each other, which is not getting us anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think being aware of it can definitely help. And also having that empathy and trying to put yourself in, in the other person's place and being like, okay, I'm feeling pretty overwhelmed. And I think they're showing signs to me and maybe I'm projecting on them, maybe not but I'm reading it it as they are also feeling overwhelmed. And so that's helping me to calm down because I'm understanding that the things that they're saying are influenced by that, which is helping me understand that things I'm saying are influenced by that. So it's like this back and forth. But the second thing that your comment brought up for me is, um, so I work in, in animal welfare and recently we've been doing a bunch of webinars on like racism and bias and especially um, in in as far as um, adoption talks go. And one of the things that's a continuous theme in animal welfare is not judging people and understanding that if people are coming to your animal shelter to relinquish an animal, it's because they're already in that emergency mode, right? They're already in survival mode and like you're the last resort. And so I think I'm trying to think of how I can articulate this so it'll be clean because <laughs> I'm bringing in a bunch of things that I realize other listeners are not going to have the background for. <laughs> um, but the takeaway is there's been a lot of emphasis in animal welfare to um, understand that other people are probably not in, they're not putting their best foot forward when they're interacting with you because by nature of an animal shelter, the people that are coming to you for help are never going to be in those positions because if they were, they wouldn't be bringing an animal to you, right? Yeah. Um, and then also remembering when we're adopting out that we have to be aware of our biases because we might judge somebody and deem them unworthy of an animal when really they might be a perfectly fine, you know, pet owner, right? Um, yeah. So there's like, there's been a lot of that kind of thought going around um, in my office. So like, the first part of the second thing, if I understand it, is what you're saying is like some people who work in animal welfare might um, develop negative stereotypes about people who are coming in to relinquish an animal. And basically the trainings that you've been receiving are about how that's really not a representational sample of whatever demographic people might be judging because the people who are doing well and don't need to relinquish the animals are not people you come in contact with. Exactly. Right? They're not going to be the ones utilizing your services because they've, you yeah. know, they're not in that situation. And also like, I don't know if you were trying to say this, but even just when you're saying like, they're not putting their best foot forward at the moment. Like if someone's coming to relinquish an animal, like they're probably already stressed. They're probably sad or guilty. Like they probably don't want to give up that animal because, I mean, this is probably an overgeneralization, but if someone cares enough to bring an animal to a shelter rather than just like dump it or something, then they probably like care about that animal. And it's not an easy time for them. So it's, it's like, you're not seeing that person on their best day. Exactly. <laughs> at all. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to remind yourself of that too, because some people, when they're in that situation, they present really callously. Because that's mm. the emotion, that's what they have to do to be able to do what they're doing, right? Because it is a hard yeah. thing. And so 
yeah, we have to remember that when we're interacting with them, like, yeah, maybe they're coming off as really rude and callous and like they don't care, but obviously they care exactly because they are there. If they didn't care, they wouldn't be there. So yeah. Yeah. People who don't care about animals just dump them or they just keep them in their yard or like lock them in a room and like barely take care of them or don't take care of them or whatever. Exactly. But then those interactions can then influence us too when we're doing adoption talks because we have all of that baggage with us in our heads when we're interacting with these other people. And if there's any sort of reminders, like maybe they're just the same height, but it's making you think of a previous person that day that gave up their dog. And now this new person who resembles Mm -hmm. them in any which way um, is trying to adopt the dog. And in your head, without even realizing it, the little lizard part of your brain is like, no, they can't have this dog because they're just going to bring it to another shelter, which is totally unfair, right? It's not fair to the person that you're interacting with that you're having this baggage, but it's definitely influencing how you're interacting with them. Mm-hmm. And you're you're connecting this because it's like um, that cognitive load leading people to oversimplify and like just kind of put people into categories. Yeah, it's a lot easier to get through your day when yeah. you're dealing with. I mean, if that's your day all day every day, that's like the cases that you're dealing with. It's a lot easier to deal with that cognitive load if you group them that way. Um, totally. But, yeah. but then at the same time, you've got to be cognizant that it's affecting you. And maybe in some really negative ways and causing you Mm -hmm. to be more judgmental. Like you're automatically like I've had days and I'll admit it where I'll see somebody walking up to the door with an animal and I've already got a story in my head about why they're there Mm -hmm. and tell me that they found the animal in my head. I'm already like, you're lying. This is, this is your animal. You're just saying that to protect yourself because you feel bad about bringing it in. And I remember specifically, and this is me being vulnerable here, (laughs) um, I remember one day that happened because we'd had a slew of people where they had said that it wasn't their animal. And then it turned out that like they were microchipped to that person. And I had bought Mm -hmm. that sob story and then I felt bad about myself. And so then this guy comes in with this dog and the dog seemed really attached to him. And this was years ago. This is when I was still kind of new at the job and automatically in my head, when he was telling me that this dog was a stray that just followed him. And so he wanted to see if it would follow him to the shelter I was like, this person is lying to me. I can't believe the audacity of this person lying to me when obviously this dog is in love with them. And obviously this is their dog. And how could they do this? And how could they be so cruel? And I'd completely judge this guy, right? I'd put him in the evil category. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it turns out it totally was not his dog because the actual owner of the dog came in (laughs) and retrieved the dog. Yeah. Um, But I think it goes back to that cognitive load and like how we group and categorize, you know, I'd had yeah. so much of those other stressors going on and like so many of these other interactions that I had just automatically grouped this guy as lying to me, even though he was completely truthful. And that made me that that specific interaction has made me a lot more conscientious of myself when I'm interacting with clients because I'm like, I can't jump to conclusions. I really can. <laughs> yeah. I think what I'm wanting to say about this though is like I think one takeaway is just being aware of our own tendency to do that and maybe trying to mitigate it, but also at the same time being like compassionate with ourselves that that is just a very human thing to do. Like that's how our brains work. We're not going to be able to avoid doing that all the time. Yeah. (laughs) And that's how our brains work. And sometimes that's a good survival strategy because like, 
if you're going through life and, you know, to find people that might be actually out to trick you in a much more uh, dangerous way than them simply trying to give you a dog. Yeah. Um, it might help you, right? That might save you and keep yeah. you from getting scammed if you're yeah. able to to group and categorize that way. So yeah, I think just understanding it's probably good and being aware of it and not beating yourself up over it because it is very human. Yeah. I was thinking of examples of this related to a job that I had for about a year that I no longer work at, but I was kind of not sure like how much I should say about that. Um, so I think... I'll share a different experience that you, um, something you said also made me think of, which was that when I was studying abroad a couple years ago, I was robbed. Um, I was tricked and had my entire like backpack taken from me with my passport and all my clothes and a bunch of souvenirs. And um, fortunately I had my wallet and my phone in my pockets. <laughs> uh, so wasn't like the worst disaster it could have been but after that I was like stuck in the city where I was I couldn't um like leave back to where I was staying because it was like on the other side of a border for a couple days and I noticed as I was walking down the street that I was just way more nervous about people and I didn't trust my own judgment and so I basically just was not trusting anyone and before that like if somebody on the street there like asked me for money like I might give them some money or something and Mm. um, then after that there was I had this experience where there was like this apparent like mom and her son who was pretty young actually and but he was like asking me for money and I just like jumped away from him like it was just like this instinctual response like I like practically jumped away from him on the sidewalk and just like kept walking around them like really fast. Um, And he was like, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to hurt you. You know, like, like he was just like asking me for money and in all likelihood that was actually the case, but my own sense of trust in other people and in my own judgment after being tricked by this other person was so broken that I felt like I couldn't trust anyone. And like, I was chunking into like anyone who's coming up to me on the street is a danger, (laughs) even though I also feel really bad that I like jumped away from this like boy who (laughs) was asking for help and in all likelihood probably was sincere, (laughs) but I just, it was like instinctive in that moment. (laughs) Yeah. I think we have to be kind to ourselves for that because yeah it's and that goes back to the like all the research and everything for trauma right like how we work through it and how we move past it and forgive ourselves and forgive other people but yeah it's like a totally natural reaction to have right you have this bad experience and then like anything you associate with it you want to react that like you want to avoid that happening again because it's like such a bad experience Mm -hmm. yeah and I kind of wanted to tie this into one other thing but I don't know if I'm trying to pack too much stuff in here or not would you like to hear about it definitely there's this other study that I wanted to mention by Campbell and Volhart from 2014 I actually think I read this first maybe um, and then I read the other one and basically they did this research and they found that when people label others as evil, 
that, as they say, it may reduce willingness to interact with them in nonviolent ways and make violence the preferred option. So to be more specific, they found that a belief in evil by study participants would predict support for multiple types of violent policies, such as the use of nuclear weapons and the death penalty, as well as um, support for higher military spending and negatively predicting support for reparations to citizen casualties of war. So people who believe in evil are more likely to support the death penalty, nuclear weapon use, high military spending, and less likely to support reparations to individuals who are affected by war who are non-combatants, like not in the military of the like occupied country. Um, and so I know I'm extrapolating here because it's a different context, but I'm thinking there's this progression. Okay, I have a high cognitive load. I have too much on my mind. I'm oversimplifying things. I'm dividing people into good and bad, uh, good and bad categories. And then if thinking people are evil is more likely to produce a willingness to engage in violence towards them, then there's an indirect link between a high cognitive load and violence. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. Um, which is interesting because I'm wondering, like, jumping back to earlier in the conversation uh, when we were talking about, like, the amount of disinformation and, like, all the chaos and and that confusion, I'm wondering, too, like, because I've, I've definitely heard about studies, and I had a friend who was actually working on their PhD. Um, they were looking at mob mentality, mm-hmm. uh, and they were also looking at a bunch of different conflicts and wars, and, like, what they, the whole point of their... PhD was they were trying to find what that tipping point is like at one point do you go from just being a group do you go to being a mob and at what point do you go from there's a lot of tension to now we're declaring war like at mm-hmm. what point is the do you tip over into violence and one of the things that I remember them telling me about was how important othering is so mm-hmm. uh, you have to dehumanize and like other the the side that you want to commit the violence against And right now, and tell me if this is like, again, pulling in too much and trying to tie too much in together, but to me, I'm glad, I'm really glad you're saying this. Yeah. Keep going. um, To me, it seems like there definitely is a tie to the cognitive load and othering because like, just look at this pandemic and mask usage and all of that, the amount of misinformation attacking different people and just sowing all of this and like trying to like throwing out so many different conspiracy theories and trying to sow so much um, disinformation that we don't know where to look for the right stuff, right? Like, cause we're hearing 20 different numbers about fatalities and we're hearing like a hundred different statistics and we can't make sense of any of that. And then we're trying to keep our jobs together and we're trying to keep social distancing. We're trying to figure out how to deal with isolation and, and navigate these new climates and the economics of it, right? Like there's all these pressures from all these different ways. And then you throw in on top of that, all of this, this information creating a total chaotic crazy cognitive load right so you're like short-circuiting already and then you have someone suggest that this over here is evil and that's the reason like you want to jump on that like it suddenly Mm -hmm. makes you want to be like yes they are evil and they're the reason all of this is happening and you don't even have the the pause for breath between that thought and the other one right and I think it's definitely connected like it seems almost like it's it would be very easy to use that as a tool to to push people's influences yeah. knowing that 
No, I felt myself be affected by that. Less so now, actually, although probably now to some extent. But in the past, I've felt myself really get caught up in like someone is like, this is the problem. This is the root of the issue. Like we're going to be anti this. <laughs> and it's like not necessarily the most nuanced analysis, but it like feels so good to like have something. I'm not sure if this really relates to exactly what you were saying, but. <laughs> yeah, um, I think so. Yeah. Because it's giving you then something to go after. <laughs> Yeah. And and it makes you feel like you can solve it that way too, right? Like, oh, now yeah. I've got something to blame and you know, I can calm myself down this way because I, I can focus on that. And like yeah. I wonder if that's like our way of trying to reduce a cognitive load is like having some a way to direct it. So it's like it can be both a weapon and also like it's kind of using our own um our own ways of trying to cope against us, maybe. I don't know. Maybe that's too far to push that. Well, this kind of relates to a thought I've had before about, or maybe not, I don't know, but um, I've had this thought about, because in Chico, as I'm sure in many places, there's a lot of debates about homelessness and like, what should we be doing about homelessness? Are they freeloaders that need to be like held accountable for their decisions? Or are these people who've been like screwed by the system that need, you know, support and justice, um, economic justice, or whatever it may be. Um, And I've had this thought that some of the hate that I see for homeless people might come from, I'm just imagining, okay, if I care about all these people that are homeless, then I'm more likely to be overwhelmed, right? Because because you can't help them all. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe one way to reduce cognitive load is to have these two categories, just like you might have the categories of good and evil. There's also these categories, I think, of like people I care about and people I don't care about. And if sometimes I think what happens is that we may even decide who we care about based on not on any other thing of like, oh, well, I have a friendship with this person or they're a part of my community or they're a human being inherently worthy of value. But caring about this person is hard and painful because they're struggling. And so I'm going to like put them in the category of people I don't care about. But then you have to have a reason for that. You have to have like a reason to justify it. And so then you need to tell a story about why their situation is totally it. their fault and, um, you know, downplay the systemic factors. And at the same time, I see other people doing the opposite of, you know, removing all personal responsibility. I kind of had this thought a while ago of like, wow, this is really bifurcated. Like you got half <laughs> the people who are like, it's all systemic <laughs> and half the people who are like, you know, it's all individual responsibility. And as someone who's been homeless and knows other people who's been homeless, I think it's always a combination of both, like maybe in different degrees. Like for some people, it's probably more personal um, choices. And some people, it's more like, wow, everything around them is just screwing them over no matter how hard they try. And, (laughs) but most people are probably like a pretty big mix. And it seems like it's hard to acknowledge that. Like we divide it into one thing or the other. 
Yeah, we want it to be binary and like black or white, but there we have to acknowledge all the shades of gray. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I guess I want to say as, um, you know, as the host of this podcast that for anyone listening, like that's my take on it currently. And that doesn't mean that people aren't welcome to listen and engage with this um, if you have a different perspective. And in fact, if you have a different perspective on that, I would welcome to hear from you. You can email me. Maybe you can come on the show. We'll talk. I'm not going to be mean to you. Um, This is about dialogue, not about proving people wrong and telling them why they're bad and evil, as we've been discussing. And my experience with you is that you are really good at helping to facilitate that dialogue without attacking people. So don't be afraid to engage people. It's okay. (laughs) Maybe that's a good place to wrap up, unless you have any other final thoughts. No, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of things to think about. Yeah. Thank you. It's been nice to do this episode with you and kind of get to share the concepts that I want to talk about with like through like a conversation with you and also hear your thoughts on it because you brought in a lot of important things. Well, thank you for having me. (laughs) Yeah. So if you do have any thoughts or feelings you want to share, any personal experiences that you have had with um, cognitive load, feeling mentally overloaded um, about uh, political situations and how is that affecting your personal life or vice versa? How is a difficult personal situation affecting your engagement with political issues and your insights and experiences with categorizing people and then like willingness to commit violence against someone based on what category they're in anything or any other thoughts you have you can email me at dialogue dilemmas at gmail.com or you can uh, find the podcast on facebook it's dialogue dilemmas or on twitter dialogue dilemma unfortunately i had to leave off the s due to the character limit (laughs) i would welcome your engagement and maybe we can even talk about you coming onto a future episode if you're interested i hope to hear from you And as you'll know, if you listen to the first episode, I'm doing this for a project for my graduate degree and also doing some research on how this podcast is affecting people, what the impact is. So please, if you are interested, check out those social media pages and tell me what you think about any of the topics we've covered. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 